Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support. We will be discussing wrist anatomy today along with scapholunate injuries. These are commonly tested in-service topics as well as clinically relevant as we see many patients in hand clinic with wrist pain and trauma. Today we have Dr. Richard, orthopedic hand surgeon and program director for the Duke Hand Surgery Fellowship. He's also my mentor. Thank you, Dr. Richard, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. We'll start with reviewing some of the anatomy of the corpus. So the wrist consists of eight carpal bones, which are divided into two rows of four bones each. So the proximal row is composed of the scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum, pisiform, and the distal row from radial to ulnar is the trapezium, trapezoid, capitate, and camate. The carpus is supported by intrinsic and extrinsic ligaments. Intrinsic ligaments originate and insert within the carpus, while extrinsic ligaments originate or insert outside the carpus. Ligaments comprising the proximal row interosseous ligaments are the scapholunate and lunotricretial interosseous ligaments. Rachel, do you want to go through some of the extrinsic ligaments? Yeah, when we talk about our extrinsic ligaments, we can talk about our dorsal and volar ones. Um, along the volar side of the wrist from radial to ulnar, the ligamentous elements include the radioscapho-capitate ligament or RSC ligament, the long radiolunate ligament, the ligament attestu or the radioscapholunate ligament, those are the same thing, the short radiolunate ligaments followed by the ulnolunate and ulnotriquetral ligaments. Rachel, those are a great description of the volar extrinsic ligaments. Can we take a minute and just break those down and sure. talk about some relative importance of each of those? The radioscapho-capitate ligament, or the RSC, is the most radial on the volar aspect of the wrist, and its importance is that it travels right across the waist of the scaphoid. So if you picture the scaphoid as a bilobed bone, it has the shape of a peanut or a cashew, and right across the waist is the RSC ligament. And I think a lot of the causes of scaphoid fractures occurring at the waist is because the RSC is like a seatbelt holding the waist of the scaphoid down. And when the wrist hyperextends as it does to break a scaphoid, that holds one side firmly into the scaphoid fossa and the radioscapho-capitate ligament doesn't allow travel of that portion of the bone and the distal pole will break around it. But that is a really important ligament to think about for uh, not just the crossing from the radial styloid to the distal row, mm -hmm. but also as far as translocation of the carpus yeah. in a surgery like a PRC. You have to be sure to preserve that RSC ligament to prevent ulnar translation mm -hmm. of the carpus. And there's a good paper that talks about where it originates. It's like what? The paper that I think you're referencing is about how much of the radial styloid, styloid yeah. you can take on a radial styloidectomy. It's like four to seven or something. Exactly. And it matters whether you're, you're volar or dorsal because That's the RSC right. is a volar structure. So you're going to take less from the volar side than you can from the dorsal side. So you don't get into it. That makes the, sense. The other important part is on a radiocarpal fracture dislocation. That really has about a third of the scaphoid fossa on it. Mm -hmm. So if that piece is bigger than a third of the scaphoid fossa, you're going to have, have to fix the bony piece in order to regain control of the radioscapic capability. And we're going to talk about this a little bit in our next lecture, but the, my understanding is that in perilunate dislocations, the short radiolunate ligament actually generally stays attached, and that's what keeps, gives that lunate the 
tipped over look. Correct. Correct. That's a great lead into the other important roller carpal extrinsic ligaments there. Probably the next most important one is the short radial lunate. And that is a very short tether from the volar lunate facet of a distal radius fracture, which is the critical corner to the volar aspect mm -hmm. of the lunate. And that's what stays intact in a arc injury or perilunate mm -hmm. style injury. All right. Thank you, Dr. Richard. Um, we'll talk about the dorsal extrinsic ligaments next. Those include the dorsoradial radiocarpal ligament, which originates at the radius between the scaphoid and lunate fossa and extends obliquely across to attach to the lunate and triquedrum, and the dorsal intercarpal ligament, which extends obliquely in a radial direction to insert along the distal scaphoid and trapezium. And these extrinsic ligaments together provide the stability to the carpus um, and, and affords the motion that we have um, without these dislocation patterns that we're talking about. These ligaments form a dorsal and palmar V-shape that supports the carpus and are directly perpendicular to the forces that favor carpal dissociation from the radius. So injuries to these ligaments can cause carpal instability patterns, which we'll talk about next. Uh, Hannah, do you want to start us off with kinematics? Sure. The wrist and distal radial ulnar joint, or DRUJ, combined to form essentially a universal joint. This is normally capable of stable motion with six degrees of freedom in the cardinal plane. So flexion, extension, radial deviation, ulnar deviation, pronation, supination. And overall, the bones of the distal carpal row are tightly bound to each other, creating essentially a, a single functional unit. The bones of the distal row move with the hand through all six degrees of freedom. However, the proximal carpal row behaves differently as there is motion between the adjacent bones as the entire row moves essentially in the same direction. The proximal carpal row bones move with the distal row bones during flexion and extension of the wrist, which is known as adjunct rotation, but they continue to experience flexion and extension during radial and ulnar deviation of the wrist respectively, and this is conjunct motion. Do I have that right, Dr. Richard? That's exactly right. Okay. <laughs> we actually had an in-service test, uh, test question a few years ago talking about scaphoid motion, and so we'll go over that a little bit more. Um, but the scaphoid in general wants to rotate into flexion, but it is coupled to the lunate by that interosseous ligament, which we'll talk more about. Um, and so by that instance, flexion is limited. On the other hand, the lunate wants to extend because of the longitudinal forces of the capitate. So the capitate head articulates uh, slightly dorsal to the central aspect of the lunate. So that will tend to rotate it into extension. And so these coupling forces, they're linked together and they prevent the bones from moving in those respective directions. So it's the balance of scaphoid flexion and lunate extension that maintains the neutral alignment of the proximal carpal row. We'll talk about dart thrower's motion. So the wrist radial deviation is accomplished uh, with flexion of the scaphoid to get out of the way of the trapezium and the trapezoid. And this pulls the lunate into slight flexion, but less than the scaphoid. And then wrist ulnar deviation comprises primarily extension of the scaphoid along with the lunate and triquetrum as the trapezium and trapezoid move away from the radius, allowing room for the scaphoid to extend. So like that test question that we had a few years ago in the dart thrower's axis, which is if you think about it, it's your wrist extended and radial deviation moving into ulnar devi deviation and flexion. There will be minimal motion of the carpal row. Did I say that right? You said that exactly right. Okay. That was a mouthful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll now talk about the scapholunate ligament. So this is a C-shaped ligament that attaches along the dorsal proximal and volar margins. It contains dorsal, volar, and membranous portions. The dorsal portion is the thickest and strongest and has transversely oriented fibers. And there are several important secondary stabilizers. 
Do you want to review these, Dr. Richard? Sure, absolutely. And I think you, one of the important things that you just said is that the scaphoid ligament is not just a band of tissue between the scaphoid and the lunate. If you look at the scaphoid and the lunate, it is a C-shaped ligament with the open part of the C pointing distal and has a dorsal band, a proximal or membranous band, and a volar band, just as you said. So there's really nothing between the two bones. And when you're thinking about your reconstructions, you have to think about reconstructing that critical dorsal aspect. And while we're talking about it, just for completeness sake, because the lunate, lunar triquetral joint does the exact opposite, it's trying to extend, the volar part is the most critical part of the LT ligament, which is also C-shaped with the open part of the C, again, pointing distal. The secondary stabilizers are really important. And I think it is really important to think about a 3D picture of the scaphoid. And when we get x-rays, you're getting a 2D picture of a 3D problem. And you have to think about the three planes of motion that we have in real life that can deform the scaphoid. So when you tear your scaphoid ligament, that dorsal band, it'll allow diastasis or some change in the coronal plane. So you'll get widening. You'll hear people call it the Terry Thomas sign, which is older than all of us here, but he was apparently a British comedian. Well, older than comedian. And I. So, <laughs> so that'll give you your diastasis on the, on the PA film. That shows the, the distance between the scaphoid being greater than three or four millimeters being positive. But you'll also get flexion of the scaphoid, as we talked about, and you'll get pronation of the scaphoid around the curved surface of the capitate. So the secondary stabilizers that you're talking about, Hannah, are the STT ligaments, mm -hmm, the scaphocapitate ligament, and the STT volar capsule. And those really have to be lost as well to allow those other two planes of motion. So you won't see a DZ deformity with flexion of the scaphoid and extension of the lunate away from each other unless you've lost those secondary stabilizers. Yeah. They may not be injured in the inciting event, but they'll be strained and stressed over time such that they get attenuated mm -hmm. and are functionally incompetent. And uh, that is what the secondary stabilizers do. They hold the scaphoid up and they prevent pronation around the curved surface of the capitation. Yeah, this is a very complex topic. Talk so you're about saying this you won't see time. the imaging changes unless the secondary stabilizers Yes, correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you, and I don't know if this is even worth talking about, but like when you, you can see, you might not even see the coronal plane yeah. right away. You have to do a stress view. So I guess the whole point of talking about the anatomy of the carpus, the volar extrinsic ligaments, the interosseous ligaments, is so that we can talk about scaphalunate dissociation. And so we're talking about this because it is the most common form of carpal instability. Um, and it's frequently tested and we should know about it. So generally the mechanism of injury is axial loading, um, a wrist that is extended um, and ulnarly deviated. The presenting symptoms are typically pain over the SL ligament, which is gonna be one centimeter distal to listers. And then sometimes you can have a positive Watson's test or scaphoid shift test with painful clunking and clicking. And this uh, maneuver was actually on our in-service a few years ago. Hannah, do you want to go over that with us? Sure. So the way you'd perform this in clinic, you would have the examiner's thumb on the palmar surface of the patient's distal pole of the scaphoid. You would place your index finger over the dorsal surface of the scaphoid joint and then passively move the patient's wrist from ulnar deviation to radial deviation while applying a dorsally directed force on the distal pole of the scaphoid. And a positive response is dorsal pain 
with detection of dorsal subluxation of the proximal pole of the scaphoid, out of the scaphoid fossa of the radius, and that's the clunk that you can feel. That's exactly right. And it's important to recognize that pain alone is not a positive test. Mm -hmm. It's the clunk that has to be present for this test to be positive. And I think that might have actually been our question, what is the clunk of the Watson's test? And that is, um, that is the dorsal subluxation of the proximal pole of the scaphoid out of the fossa of the radius. Exactly right. We're going over specific x-ray findings, so you'll get an x-ray next. Um, just keep in mind that the perfect scapholunate view is in 10 degrees of hyperpronation. So a standard PA is not going to, you're not going to get that straight on view of the scapholunate ligament. Patients may have a normal PA. And so at that point, you can test for a dynamic SL injury, which is an injury that you can see, you know, with axial directed force. And that's called a clenched pencil view. And you can get those views as well. Remember, we talked about how they can be normal, but they will progress to static changes once those secondary stabilizers attenuate, and Dr. Richard made a good point of um, addressing that. So as these injuries progress, the scaphoid will flex, um, and this uh, leads to increased SL angle and radioscaphoid angle, um, which we sometimes call the cortical ring sign when the scaphoid is in flexion. You'll also visualize collapsed carpal height due to capitate subsidence and an extended lunate. And so that's pretty far down the road, but those are the eventual changes you'll see. And just for criteria for radiographic diagnosis of an SL injury, you need an increased scaphalunate angle of greater than 70, 30 to 60 is normal, and an SL gap is greater than three millimeters. And I did have a question how you measure that because I've seen a lot of people, there's a lot of discrepancy about how to measure the SL interval. And so what point do you typically use? So to get back to your point that the plane of the scapholunate ligament is not perpendicular to the PA view or parallel to the beam in a PA view. Uh, yeah, you taught me that, I think. I think I, think I did. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things you can do if you have the patient flex their ring and small finger at the MCP and PIP joint so that the fingertips touch the distal palmar crease and then rest their hand down. It'll bump up the ulnar side of the hand into the few degrees of hyperpronation that you need so that your x-ray view goes right down the SL interval. So you really do want to measure on a, on a good view that looks down the axis of the SL to make sure you're measuring uh, the same point. It is very common that people will have a four or five millimeter gap, but it'll be symmetric. And this tends to be in younger women who are maybe a little more ligamentously lax or younger patients in general. So uh, in those cases, I always get the contralateral side to compare. And if they're symmetric, then it is probably not pathologic. That's uh, a good point. Yeah. Well, I had a question for okay. you. Okay. Yeah. So you're convinced this. on x-ray that someone has an SL injury. Do you consider arthroscopy before repairing or just go straight to the repair? Assuming it's a key, yeah. without these other changes. Right. Yeah. If you, on x-ray, we said this is likely to sell tear, would you look, I guess, first arthroscopically? I would have a low threshold to scope first. I would. So I would, what I would do is, you mentioned the clench pencil view. That was on the orthopedic in-service before, and there's studies that have compared the different views to yes. look at a dynamic SL. I got this question wrong. In the clenched <laughs> uh, pencil view, where you put both, you're grasping a pencil in both hands on the same film, and it's a PA film, so you see both sides, that is the most sensitive, the most sensitive. for determining diastasis in that axial plane. And then the, I think the reason to think about that 
is if you look at your hand, the long axis of the hand, wrist, and form is the long finger through the third metacarpal, which is right in line with the capitate, which is right centered over the scaphalunate interval. And that, again, is right over the intermediate column of the distal radius when you start thinking about distal radius fractures. But every time you <laughs> It grip, always goes back to that. <laughs> it gets the distal radius fracture eventually. <laughs> but when you think about grip, you're loading, you're driving the third metacarpal into the capitate, which is pile driving between the SL interval. So grip will show you any dynamic instability that you can't see in a static film. Uh, and that'll stress it in the way that will demonstrate that instability when it's present. So that clenched pencil view is the most sensitive for that. And you're just taking advantage of your understanding of the anatomy and the position of the, the bones that'll do that. And do you often get, you know, we talk about ancillary imaging, which is brief, but MRI is what we would typically get for these injuries, correct? And do you do get those often? I do get those and I tend to get an MR arthrogram uh, and the radiologist will have different takes on it than the hand surgeons. But if they inject the radiocarpal joint with dye and then walk them over to the MRI, there's essentially three different compartments of the wrist. There's the radiocarpal joint, the midcarpal joint distally, and then the DRUJ proximally. And that dye in the radiocarpal joint, if it leaks into the midcarpal joint, it tells you that there's some potential intrinsic ligament injury that allowed it to get through and it can highlight that track through. Same thing when you're thinking about TFCC tears, mm -hmm. if it uh, tracks through the TFCC into the DRUJ, then you know that there's uh, a tear there and it can illuminate the track. So I do like MRI and I like MR arthrogram specifically, though a perforation in the membranous portion or the volar part, which may not be clinically important, can also do that. So I think you have to take it with a grain of salt and also look at the MRI images as well. But Hannah, to answer your question, because I don't think I completely answered it, the, as far as the scope, right. If they had a dynamic instability, mm -hmm. that would suggest you can only get that widening if you have the dorsal band out. Okay. So um, I would feel more comfortable that there is an instability there, but I, I think it, it adds to the care of the patient to do the arthroscopy. You look for other injuries, chondral injuries, and get a sense of the grade if you're unsure. So there is an arthroscopic grading system, the Geisler uh, grading system, which is uh, Will Geisler at the University of Mississippi, and it's one, two, three, four. Uh, and it looks at the potential instability of the scaphalunate ligament mm -hmm. and the- Ability to drive the scope through that. The ability to drive the scope through. And the one that is complete is the grade four, where you can literally take a 2.7 millimeter scope and drive from the radiocarpal joint into the midcarpal joint and look at the capitate. I think that does have to be taken with a grain of salt because there is a study out of England that looked at the Geisler grade in cadavers, and they had a wide array of Geisler grades, one, two, three, and four, and then they dissected out the cadavers, and it did not correlate with true disruption of the hmm. dorsal band of the scaphalunate ligament. So it can be a marker of laxity of the scaphalunate ligament and not, not solely a true instability or pathology is a better way to say it. Okay, thanks. Just to summarize, the progression of scaphalunate instability can occur over time or acutely with trauma. The progression typically follows as occult injuries can lead to dynamic injuries, scaphalunate dissociation or static deformity, 
DC deformity in which the lunate is extended and the scaphoid is flexed, and finally development of slack wrist, which is scaphoid lunate advanced collapse. The stages of slack wrist are stage one. There's first arthritis at the radial styloid, which can progress, and stage two is arthritis of the entire scaphoid fossa of the distal radius, and stage three is arthritis of the capitolunate articulation. Treatment of these injuries is very complex and depends on the stage of the scaphalunate injury as well as surgeon preference. So in general, acute injuries can be treated with a dorsal ligament repair through bone tunnels or suture anchors with supplemental K-wire fixation of SL or SC joints and protective motion is recommended for two to three months. Do you want to uh, talk you- to us a little bit about your approach, mm-hmm. what you use? So for the acute tear, an acute typically means within the first six to eight weeks. And the problem with that is that a lot of times this injury is sat on for some period of time, either by the patient or or the primary care doctors who may be seeing it as a wrist sprain. It is technically a sprain, but you lose the ability to repair that ligament over time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't see these injuries until they're a little bit later, which makes it more difficult to take care of. But If you were taking care of someone that you knew had an acute injury, so you did not have concern for the integrity of the tissue and the ability and potential for it to heal, then what I do is a dorsal approach, and it's a skin incision that is just ulnar to Lister's tubercle. Um, When you come down uh, through the skin, you're right on the extensor retinaculum, and you can open the extensor retinaculum over the third compartment. Uh, and, and usually for an SL repair, you don't need to completely uh, dislocate the EPL tendon, but you certainly could if that added to your ability to see. Then you are looking at the capsule, and I think you have two options. You can do a longitudinal capsulotomy, uh, just in line with that longitudinal axis that we talked about over the, the SL. The, so that you can go longitudinal through the DRC, DIC, okay. and then just repair it, or you can do a more physiologic what's uh, referred to as the ligament sparing. Ligament sparing. <laughs> there is an approach that Dr. Dick Berger at Mayo Clinic described that is ligament sparing. And as we talked about the dorsal extrinsic ligaments, there is the dorsal radiocarpal ligament that goes from the lunate facet of the distal radius, so between Lister's tubercle and the DRUJ, and it goes obliquely distal ulna to the dorsum of the triquetrum. And then the DIC, the dorsal intercarpal ligament, goes from the same spot at the dorsal aspect of the triquetrum obliquely across radially, slightly distally to the STT joint. So you can imagine if you look at the direction of those fibers, if you went right down the middle of the DRC mm-hmm. to the dorsum of the triquetrum and then right through the middle of the DIC. It's like leaving a V-shaped, a, correct? It is a V-shape. And you need to add one more limb so you would then take your scalpel from where you hit the dorsal edge of the distal radius and run up the dorsal edge of the distal radius uh, so that you actually have three sides of a trapezoid, if you will, to, <laughs> to be make exact. a radially-based flat. <laughs> there, nobody's confused right no, now. <laughs> no. So, okay, so we go through our capsule, we do ligament sparing or inline, and then we see our SL tear. You see the SL tear. Do you have to determine which side it is, it is off of? Because it can be off either the scaphoid or the lunate. So you do have to look and see if there's an avulsion, because if there's an avulsion, a little bony fragment, um, you have to decide if that's big enough to fix the bony piece or if you're just going to excise the ligament from it and repair the ligament. 
but I usually use a suture anchor to repair the ligament. And I use a double arm suture anchor, usually a two to 2.5 millimeter anchor. And I'll repair the ligament back down. I'll leave the needles on and I'll add a capsulodesis over the back. Um, so more like a blatt capsulodesis, which is a spot yeah. weld of the capsule to that dorsal aspect of the scapholunate ligament. And I will provisionally pin the scapholunate interval mm -hmm. with two 0.045 inch K wires or 1.1 millimeter K wires for Canadian friends. Do you realize that <laughs> we're, there's three countries in the world that use the empiric system and everybody else uses the metric system. Do you know what they are? The US. Empiric, empirical is like inches, feet, right? England. Australia. Doesn't England use it? I thought they did like- Nope, nope. Okay, so the US has gotta be- We need a hint. Um, the flag is very similar no. to ours. West coast of Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. You guys have no flags either? No. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Liberia. I'm still trying to learn the black capsule adhesis. <laughs> it's, it's us, Liberia, and I think Myanmar, which used to be Burma. I think they're the only three countries in the world that use the, well, special. the imperial system. Obviously. The metric, the base 10 makes so much sense. Too much sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I have a question. So, so you repaired this? Did your, <laughs> did, did your capsule adhesis? So, say you say you're not sure, but it looks acute, and you go in, and it's, you know, at what point do you perform a reconstruction over a repair? So, yeah. do you do that for st all static deformities, or do you do the? Will you do a primary repair for a static deformity that is reducible? Um, can you yeah. talk a little bit about your decision making yeah. in that stance? Because that's where there is like middle ground where you can decide to reconstruct, yeah. repair, or leave alone. Totally. That, that, that's a great question. And, and, and I will say that there is a wonderful paper. It's 2006 by Mark Garcia Elias in Barcelona. Yeah, he's so good. He's, he really understands this. And if you're interested in hand beyond the setting for the test, I would recommend that you look up this paper. Mark, M A R C spells it correctly, Garcia Elias. <laughs> in Barcelona, and he goes through a series of five questions I have, yeah. that are yes, no, yes, no. It's a great algorithm for the treatment of these. And you get to the point of reducibility of the scaphalunate ligament. And can you describe <laughs> what you mean by reducible? reducibility? Yeah. yeah, so that's a great question. So reducibility is the ease with which you can put the scaphoid and lunate back, back together. together. Okay. So what you do is you put that's joysticks true. in, so you take a K-wire. explain what it, yeah. So you take either a 0.045 inch K-wire or a 0.062 inch K-wire, and you drill it into the scaphoid and one into the lunate from dorsal to volar. Now remember, if you're trying to correct a deformity, yeah. your scaphoid is going to be flexed right. and your lunate is going to be extended. So the goal is to put those joysticks in. The scaphoid is going to be from distal to proximal, and the lunate is going to be from proximal to distal. You got it. So that in the end, you are making those two K wires parallel and that'll correct. It'll pull the scaphoid out of flexion and the lunate out of. And what is preventing that over time? So what pre prevents that over time is exactly what you were alluding to before, the secondary stabilizers. So very good lead in to, to come back around to that. The STT ligaments, the scaphocapitate ligaments in the volar STT capsule will fibrose over time. 
they'll attenuate and they'll fibrose and that'll prevent the correction of the deformity. Reducible means that you can easily close down that deformity in all three planes that we talked about. If you have to, if you really have to make effort for it, and even if you have joysticks in and you feel like you're hogging those two joysticks together, a soft tissue reconstruction is not going to work. Okay. And then you're, you're beyond, if you look at that Garcia Elias paper, you're beyond the soft tissue reconstruction. You're looking at one of the salvage procedures mm-hmm. with like a four corner fusion or PRC. Mm-hmm. So great review. So for the acute, we're doing the direct repair with the bone tunnels like we talked about through that dorsal approach and a capsulodesis. Partial tears, do you often debride those arthroscopically? Correct. If they're particularly, if it's the volar surface or the membranous portion. Exactly right. And uh, that, that can be done arthroscopically. You do have to scope the mid-corpal joint. So you will put a camera in your instruments in the mid-corpal joint as well to evaluate the scapulonate from that side as you're doing your Geisler grading and to have uh, full access to the pathology that is there. And then will you talk a little bit about the chronic injuries? So we did talk about those that are still reducible, potentially a repair, but how about if they're not reducible, that we do have some, you know, salvage procedures on the next option. So ones that they decide to reconstruct, do you want to talk about the different reconstructions for those? So if the interval can be easily reduced with those joysticks that we talked about, uh, but there is not good tissue to repair, then you're going to do a reconstruction. And the, there's a number of reconstructions out there. The classic one, which is actually described in that paper that we were just talking about from Garcia Elias, is um, the Brunelli reconstruction or a variant of that. It's called a three-ligament tenodesis. And that is a soft tissue reconstruction to try and hold the scaphoid up out of flexion and close the interval between the, uh, the scapholunate interval. What you'll do in that case is you'll harvest some of the FCR, the flexor carpi radialis tendon, because the FCR tendon inserts on the base of the index finger volarly, and you'll make a tunnel in the scaphoid to pass that strip of the FCR tendon through. And what you will want to do is you'll use whatever screw system you use for scaphoid fractures. You'll place a guide wire where you want to make the tunnel and then over drill. And your goal should be on the dorsal aspect, you want the tunnel to exit at the footprint of the scaphoid ligament, of course. And on the volar side, you want it to be on the uh, more proximal side of the distal pole so that when you tuck that ligament in, you're really pulling that scaphoid up out of flexion. If you start too distal on it, it won't correct the flexion deformity. So uh, once you have your guide wire in a good place, you make that bone tunnel. Usually these drills are somewhere in the order of 2.5 millimeters. So I just harvest the entire FCR tendon. We used to do that for LRTIs back in the day, uh, or so I'm told. (laughs) And then you cut a strip of the tendon to the size that you need. And usually it's somewhere around two, two and a half millimeters. And you'll pull that through the scaphoid, which will help pull it out of flexion. And then you'll have already... when you exit the dorsal aspect of the scaphoid, you'll have one aspect of your scaphoid ligament reconstruction already in place. You'll jump across to the lunate and put an anchor in and attach the tendon at the footprint of the scaphoid ligament on the lunate side. And then you'll still have some extra tendon and you actually make a little pulley in the dorsal radiocarpal ligament that we talked about. So you make a split in the DRC pass that tendon through and then sew it back to itself again at the back of the lunate. 
The one problem with that reconstruction is it corrects two of the three planes that we talked about. It doesn't have that anti-pronation component. So now there are newer reconstructions. Uh, Michael Sandow in Australia described the ANAFAB, A-N-A-F-A-B, which is the anatomic front and back. Um, Mark Garcia Elias has his own version. Um, some of the other Australians, Mark Ross has one as well. And they are kind of front and back, so they'll have a component that corrects that pronation deformity that the Brunelli or the three ligament tenodesis doesn't. But that has to, that's a very narrow group of patients that are easily reducible, but are outside that window of acute repair. I hope everyone got that. Thank you, Dr. Richard. <laughs> I think I'm going to need a picture for that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a drawing. Uh, so the last thing that we will review is if the patient has slack wrists, what are the different options? If the patient has stage one, then we can perform a radial stylodectomy. And then for more advanced stages, the patient might require a PRC scaphoid excision four-corner fusion or ultimately complete arthrodesis if none of these are successful or they continue to have pain. I think we'll probably end at that, but there are different options. And I think the main point with the proximal row carpectomy is you cannot perform that if you have arthritis in, in that capital lunate space. You have to have no mid-carpal arthritis or else you cannot perform a PRC. Am I correct, Dr. Richard? Exactly that? right. Otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be performing a scaphoidectomy and four-corner fusion um, for these patients. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Richard. It is my pleasure. <laughs>